Welcome to the Everyday Innovator Podcast for product managers, leaders, and innovators. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping you become a product master. Listen and get ready for higher performance, for the doctor is in. Hi, this is Chad, and this is where product leaders and managers make their move to product masters, learning practical knowledge that leads to more influence and confidence so you'll create products customers love. You, your group, your company, and many other companies likely share a similar problem that is shared across organizations. It's a problem that is slowing both your success and organizational success. Our guest phrases it as not maximizing the goal impact of your project portfolio. I phrase it simply as doing too many projects for the resources available or not focusing on the projects that make the most difference to the organization. My guest has a four-part framework for improving this, and he shares it in this discussion, and you're going to want to hear it. It's really good insights. His name is Mike Cannon, and he has helped many organizations more quickly create value for customers and themselves by applying this framework. Also, remember, we take notes for you. You'll find the best insights from the discussion with Mike in the show notes, and that's at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 261. And there's another reason to go visit those show notes besides just the summary. I've started adding a bonus question to the written summary. It isn't one that you'll hear in the interview, but you will find it at, again, theeverydayinnovator.com slash 261. And the bonus question for Mike was, how do you convince leaders to prioritize and do fewer projects better? And you'll see his response to that in those show notes. Now, let's get to the discussion. Mike, thanks so much for joining the Everyday Innovators. Thanks for inviting me, Chad. So you have been working helping companies improve their performance, specifically that of projects and portfolio management as an aspect of that that you work in quite a bit. Before we dive into the details of that, you have this great four-part framework, four key categories I want to talk through with you. I'm curious about how you got your start going down this path. Like what stood out as your big experience that led you to explore this further and pull together pieces to make this framework? Yeah, sure. So I imagine like a lot of us that have found ourselves on this journey of trying to find a better way. I'd started early in my career when I worked on a a really big program at NASA, their space station program. And here I am working with some of the best technical minds in the world, some of the best program managers in the world, turning out truly innovative products that are doing things that never been done before. And I felt super privileged, of course, to be part of all that and learning from some of these folks. But then you can imagine how surprised I was to learn that I'd uncovered a massive budget overrun on one key part of the program that no one had seen. And I thought, how is that possible that some 24-year-old with no background in any of this stuff, doing a little bit of analysis for a couple of weeks, found out such a huge problem? And it was obviously no brilliance of my own as much as there must be a better way, right? We maybe have not cracked the, the code on really managing programs, projects, products, as well as I imagined we had. Hmm. So I thought, wow, maybe we're in the dark ages here. We've been doing projects and so forth since the pyramids and maybe before, but perhaps not with the kind of discipline. We don't have just free armies of slave labor to throw at problems like like the Egyptians did. And here we are at the time, it was still the 20th century. How could we be so far behind? So over time, I transitioned to the software world, became a software engineer, tester, product manager, project manager, and found it was even worse in that world, but also more energized, right? The, the roots of the Agile movement were forming in the 90s. Internet, you know, network-based technologies and component-based development were becoming possible and relevant. 
invaluable. And lots of debates on feature-driven development, component-based development, and iterative development, and all this stuff that seemed to make so much sense, and, and in many ways certainly does. But yet still, there were so many examples where it just didn't hit the mark, and companies would fail, even though the quality of the software might have been great. Applying CMMI methodologies felt nice, but somehow we still had overruns and unsatisfied customers and heavy and slow processes. Uh Uh, So I just thought, wow, there's just got to be a better way. And so it just sort of accidentally became my professional mission to constantly uh, learn from what others had innovated uh, and then come up with things that I thought might advance things even further. That's really good. You and I chatted a little bit before we started the recording here to just prepare for this. And I didn't know about that. We had chatted about that before, but that background very much parallels my experiences as well, mm-hmm. right? And really interesting. I have the NASA experience, but some others and CMI, Carnegie Mellon methodologies for how do we formulate software maturity and development of the life. Yeah, right on. And that's what led me back. I had no plans to ever go back and do a PhD work, right? We both teach some for graduate schools, but I kind of just got fascinated about some problems in the same space. And a few things collided, and that led me back to do the PhD to dive deeper. And it's great talking with people that have a similar experience, right? (laughs) Yeah, now you can't ever let it go, right? Right, I know, you know, you just want want to keep learning and keep helping. So (laughs) I like that. There has to be a better way. That's exactly how I I have felt about running into some obstacles as well. This issue of portfolio project management. Portfolio management is really key. For anyone not familiar to it, you'll understand why in just a moment. But you have this really great framework. And if you don't mind, I'll put a graphic of that framework in the show notes for this. Is that okay with you? To help explain kind of what we're talking through. But you talk about performance improvement in terms of goal impact. That's probably a good place to start. What do you mean by project portfolios and goal impact? Yeah, so it might be easiest to start with a simple profit example. If you work for a profit-seeking enterprise, if you can turn out a product that generates a million dollars in revenue in the first year and it costs you, say, half a million, that's great, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, But if it costs you a quarter million, that's even better. And 100K, even better. So even though the revenue or value side of the equation is the same, the bang for the buck obviously is much different, right? And when we talk about things like speed, it's not just speed for speed's sake, right? It's speed to change both the value side of the equation and the cost side, right? If I can get four projects done or products out in one year instead of two, the average cost per, right? If, if I've got the same size team and the same cost profile, I'm investing in it. The impact is huge. And so... I think oftentimes, certainly in the project management world, there's way too much focus on just individual project costs, right? And even methodologies like earned value is basically nothing to do with value. It's all about, are we tracking on our cost baseline the way we thought we would? And there's so much there about engineering maximal value that, of course, has usually a lot more to do with the value side of the equation, which I imagine most folks listening to this podcast care most about. But I argue that it's both, that you can deliver some enormously uh, valuable product over a given span of time, but what if you could double that or quadruple it, Hmm. right, and get that flow going? And so, of course, this works if you're not a profit-seeking enterprise and you measure value in other ways. Uh, Certainly, NASA measured things in other ways, right? So you might think of it if you're a public sector entity in terms of mission impact, But that word impact gets thrown around a lot. And for me, it basically boils down to bang for the buck, 
right? Or sometimes it's even more than bucks being invested right. um, and being returned. And so maybe an even better term I like, if you'll allow it, is juice for the squeeze. <laughs> I've heard that one too. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> if you think about it, any product initiative or project is an investment. And as investors, like if you imagine your own 401k, you have certain goals you'd love to hit uh, before you retire or some other time horizon. And, you know, you want to balance your risk and so forth. But at the end of the day, if it ends up doubling or tripling beyond what you imagined, you're thrilled. Right. Right. And, and so that's what I mean when I say maximizing goal impact. There is no upper, upper limit. Not even the sky is the limit. Uh, we welcome any upside that might come, no matter how big. And we forget often, especially when we talk about on schedule, on scope, on budget and things like that. We forget, you know, we put ourselves in that little box for no good reason. We forget about the value we're trying to maximize at the other end, which has no upward limit. Yeah. So if you if you start with that kind of right goal, maximizing goal impact, it's very liberating. Right. You say, well, I can there's all sorts of levers I might pull to try and, and tilt the equation in my favor then. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that summary, the, you know, the bang for the buck. I'm interrupting the discussion just for a moment to tell you about a really interesting experience I had recently at a professional conference for product managers and innovators, the annual PDMA conference. Now, it was a great experience because I got to help so many people. In one form of this was several times a person that I had helped in the past, they came to find me. They sought me out to introduce me to someone else that they were talking to someone that wanted to mentor their product managers to help them perform at a higher level. They recognize how important product development and management is to the success of their work and the organization. And they talk about this in terms of the increased pressures that they have. We all recognize this as product people. Wanting to create products that customers love, that's what everyday innovators are all about, we get that, but also products that meet revenue and profit expectations, we have to do that, and that can be delivered more quickly, decreasing time to market. That's a lot of needs to deliver on, and that's exactly what I help organizations do. And I have an excellent mentoring system for groups of product managers. It's called the Rapid Product Mastery Experience, or for short, the RPM Experience. Kind of catchy, RPM Experience. If you lead product managers, or you are a product manager at a company with other product managers, the RPM Experience is how you can create a higher-performing product team. And I have a quick guide that tells you how the system works and the results it provides. And you'll find that at theeverydayinnovator.com slash RPM. It's helping other companies pull ahead of their competition and helping product managers work together better, enjoy their work more, and just be more effective. And I bet it can help you too. Check it out at theeverydayinnovator.com slash RPM. As product people, product managers, we're all about creating value, value for the customer and value for the organization. And it is easy to get caught in that trap you said about projects, that triple constraint of, you know, how much is this going to cost us when it's going to get done? Are we going to get everything done? And there's more to that. And one of the things that companies run into all the time is they often have more projects going on than they can actually service well with the resources they have. And that creates us some problems. And your model helps to address this. So these four categories I want to walk through, we'll go through it once up at a time. Your first category is getting more projects done. Tell us about that and, and maybe some of the tools that go into helping with that. Yeah, sure. So I start with, you know, everyone talks about taking the system view or, you know, making sure you can see the forests instead of the trees, mm-hmm. first and foremost, and, you know, being big thinkers and all that. 
But I find that the discipline of actually doing it is still quite lacking in general, right? And that no matter what methodology we choose, you know, lean, agile, traditional, predictive, you know, whatever, at the project or product level, that there's typically a, a flow question, right? That's more organizational enterprise in nature, even, even if you're a small startup. And that if you take a step back and really look at your whole organization or system in flow terms, that can be the most powerful lever anyone can pull to try and engineering to get more done. So many of us have heard uh, of, you know, how to manage work in process or work in progress. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of um, interesting thinking with Little's Law and the Lean community and, and elsewhere, a queuing theory, all that's good stuff. Uh, but I think for most of us managers living in the, in the normal world and who don't have PhDs in statistics, you know, it's a, it's a very simple concept of, you know, just because the system can handle more work doesn't mean that that will promote the best flow of work. And the best example, I think, tends to be, you know, we're all familiar with is a, a congested highway, right? Mm-hmm. Just because you can fit me on the on-ramp onto the flow of traffic doesn't mean you should if the goal is to promote maximum flow for all of us to get home on time. Right. So just because we have the capacity in organizations to launch that one more project or one more initiative, you know, under the notion, oh, well, the more we start, you know, the, the more we'll get done. When, in fact, most of us tend to uh, do the opposite, right? We flood the system so badly because we see some idle resources somewhere that we feel like we must utilize, like a little patch of asphalt on the highway that we must have a car sitting on, right? <laughs> when, in fact, if you really want better flow, you want some distance between the cars, right? right. Uh, maybe some room to change lanes and you know, adjust course, right, as you go. Mm-hmm. You can't be crowded out on the left or the right either. And so this notion that we're trying to engineer our whole system to promote maximum flow as opposed to maximum utilization is the first, the, the first big step that people, that leaders have to take, right? And again, the, the notion, a lot of us are becoming much smarter about this, you know, it's not about utilization question these days. It's great to see that. But again, this notion of, well, okay, well, what's the right level of utilization? Mm-hmm. The flow. So take, say, a four-lane highway again, and one lane, uh, one part in that highway, it shrinks to three lanes for a bridge or something. Really, that means the whole system can only handle three lanes of traffic flowing. Mm-hmm. So you'd want to engineer enough cars, right? you'd want to limit the number of cars on the road to basically just have the whole system promote three lanes at fast flow and not worry that for significant stretches, that fourth lane is going underutilized. Yeah. So that's the same for our projects, right? It's like if we can do 10 projects at one time and have them all done in 18 months, or maybe we take the first three projects that offer us the biggest value and we're going to get those things done in the next five months. Yeah. And, you know, I had a client recently that was really resistant to applying all this, right? They had a lot of very, a very large uh, old school organization, you know, very command and control oriented and uh, sometimes even fear-based and so forth. But they had one high priority project that they could put a very clear and very high dollar value on. And it was one of those, you know, every day sooner this might go into reality is another day that we get a boatload of of, of value, right? Mm -hmm. And if we are later than uh, December 31st, then there's some tax consequences that really make it much worse. So it was both faster is better no matter how soon it comes in. And if, and if it's later than this particular date, that's a problem, mm-hmm. right? 
And they had a 15-month schedule. They had never done a project like that that took less than 15 months. So even 15 months, they felt was quite aggressive. It was highly complex, associated with a big merger or acquisition, a bunch of IT systems that had to be integrated. When they actually put a bunch of projects on hold, reallocated the resources towards just this one, and made it flow, even though there was some chaos and some inefficiency and some people bumping into each other and so forth, Everyone understood the priority and everyone understood the value consequence of a single day of delay hmm. or a single day of acceleration. Yep. And they knocked it out in three months. Amazing. Right. No, 15 no, months to three months. Oh, and it was, of course, August, uh, late August. So they knocked it out by late November with a, a month of buffer before the end of the tax year to spare, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that was of enormous uh, value, value to them. And obviously, they became really big believers after that. Yeah, and that's a good example of that goal impact and what we're trying to actually accomplish. And I know a couple of the tools you talked about in this area are, you know, focus on on a single task at a time, you know, work at the task level, and then staggering projects. And we could spend the rest of our time talking about that. I just want to throw the tools out there and yeah, yeah. the graphic in the show notes. <laughs> so this is one big bucket. If we can get back to those tools, we will. But one big bucket there. Another bucket you talk about is executing projects more reliably. Tell us about that one. Yeah, so I put the first one first because, again, just like my example before with your 401k, you know, there's no maximum upward limit to the value you might be able to pursue. If you can get flow going faster and faster and faster, that's the biggest driver for juice for the squeeze, right? Biggest driver for goal impact. This deliver reliably is a little funny one because a lot of us, especially in the agile and lean communities, have begun to embrace the notion that, you know what, because so much of this stuff is unpredictable, if you demand a specific due date for a specific task, let's say, I might be able to say, yes, sir, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, but I'm not really giving you anything you can bank on. I'm just kind of, you place an unrealistic demand on me, and so I'm going to tell you a fairy tale in response, Mm -hmm. right? Well, the reality is, like in the case I just gave with this company that could wrap it up by the tax year, they're, they're they're often, not always, really large value consequences to specific dates, right? So in other words, the value proposition of your product or project initiative may well be sensitive to a due date. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, we just passed Black Friday, right? A big marketing campaign that misses Black Friday might be, might, might lose substantial value, right? So the notion that, yeah, okay, there's a lot of variability in how fast tasks take. There's a lot of uncertainty in, in the nature of some of the tasks we take on, especially if they're uh, more innovative than others, right? We may, maybe never did them before. The fact remains that if we can properly size it well, even with a rough uh, guess or estimate, and then put our best minds and the flow mentality on it, then achieving a measure of reliability for hitting dates becomes, uh, I call it the second biggest goal impact driver, right? So, and I would argue further that even if your initiative is not super sensitive or the value proposition of your initiative is not super sensitive to a given date, I would still argue that uh, any investment, which is what we're doing with projects and products, is sensitive to time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, ROI factors in time. It just means, okay, tomorrow is not quite as valuable as today. Right. Maybe every, maybe every day is we only lose a tiny bit, but we're still losing, Right. So the ability to say, well, can we at least try and get it done by, I don't know, next March, you know, based on our best high level estimates, it seems like this should should fit. The example I gave before where they had done projects that take 15 months, they, they, 
they thought that would be the most aggressive they could hope for on this one. Okay, that's a start. But if they actually had set a cadence for, say, 12 months, they would have delivered in 12 months, huh. right? Whereas this particular due date that was only four months away, they said, well, we're not, you know, we're reluctant to promise anything on that. We've never done anything like that before, but let's go for it, right? And, and indeed, we put together a high-level plan that, that, that used uh, what some of us have come to know as uh, a schedule buffer, Mm-hmm. In the agile and lean worlds, sometimes a scope buffer above the minimum viable product is is the is the preferred choice. Okay, fine, but whatever whatever buffer is there to protect the value the most, that is the thing that helps us deliver reliably. And I'm not even so so there's value there. And by the way, in the real world with real human beings, sometimes it's not even just the hard math calculating the value equation for you that gets people, you know, lead executive stakeholders the most excited. It's just the fact that, you know, you, I gave you a challenge and you delivered. Uh-huh. So now you're building credibility with me and you're not just doing it willy nilly. You actually have a discipline with, with effective use of buffers with, you know, executing against some kind of high level plan. Right? You don't want to spend obviously you know, months detailing out every little subtask on a, on a 10,000, you know, line Gantt chart or something, but, but something that actually uh, promotes the discipline of delivering when you say you can, uh-huh. right? Or take, or if you're not sure you can, taking the challenge and trying and still applying a discipline to see how fast you could go. The credibility you build with the people that are actually paying for all this or the people who have the fiduciary responsibility for all that investment money, that becomes maybe worth even more just from a professional development point of view, uh-huh. right? If you're the guy or gal, that's the, the person that somehow, we, we don't know quite how, They've got some magic, you know, potion in the back room or something, but they deliver reliably. Just that credibility factor, you know, for those of us that are trying to separate ourselves, differentiate ourselves from our peers and and rise up uh, to positions of greater responsibility and impact, uh, that can be huge too. Right. And you learn so much through that, right? The first time you will have refined your processes a little bit more, understand where you needed buffers and maybe didn't have them because of constraints you ran into. And you just learn a ton. And if you're, you're concerned about, tune. yeah. And if you're concerned about trying to put that four month, like in your example, right, that four month stake in the ground and like, man, if we miss that, we're going to lose all of our credibility. Then you position as a pilot, like, you know, we're doing something new. We're going to try this, this is what we're working towards. We'll take what we learned from it and make the next project even better. Yeah. And you know, another interesting thing on that, given that in that case, there, there was this, you know, tax year boundary, this fiscal boundary mm-hmm. that, that carried value. Again, they were thinking if we do everything perfectly, we'll get it by, you know, 15 months from now, which is in time for the end of next year. So the notion of, hey, let's go for this year was like, what are you, crazy? Right. Um, but also great value. And so it was like, well, nobody was banking on it necessarily. And, but the thinking was, well, you know what? We're so used to these things missing even the 15-month target. Then, you know, the biggest thing is if we, if we can get this even by, say, June of next year, just that delivery eliminates the risk that we might be late mm-hmm. for next year. Right. And then, you know, this year would just be a massive bonus. And of course, for them, they it turned out that way, which is great. They got the massive bonus. Good. So we're diving into the deep end of the pool here a little bit. Mm-hmm. Just in passing, we won't go into this at all. But that buffer concept you talked about comes out of the theory of constraints, which was a book we both read, I'm sure, you know, when it first came out, which really helped me think about projects in a different way. So anyone that's Mm. curious about how you deal with those constraints and buffers, 
look into that theory of constraints. I want to move on to you know the third bucket of your framework here, which is probably my favorite, which is selecting high impact mm-hmm. projects. Talk about this one some. Yeah, so now this is one area where I see the project world differ substantially from the product world because often in the product world, we're talking about completely new products, right? Or or possibly improvements to existing products. Yeah, okay. But especially if we're more in, hey, we want to innovate something completely new and different. We want to try and find a a nice blue ocean to swim in. We, We want to, you know, really go something very new and different to the marketplace, Selecting the right product there is a, is is this you know gets way more into the sort of you know core of the of what innovators do and how innovation works and how to promote fa- you know better faster innovation. And so that's a little outside of my framework, but I don't want to downplay it because I, I know that there's fantastic thinking there. And by the way, one of my favorite authors on that is Stephen Johnson, hmm. right? Talking about the history of innovation and how it actually follows certain patterns that could be harnessed and engineered. But what I'm talking about here is if you already have a number of initiatives pretty well identified and scoped out, but you just you obviously want to focus on which ones would be of highest value to the organization uh, without even thinking of execution, which is the subject of you know the first two we just talked about. Just how do I pick the right ones? So kind of like, again, the, the 401k example, we're just talking about, hey, I've got a bunch of investment options here. Which ones should I pick? Right. So there's a lot of very interesting decision science on all that that goes really underutilized. Quite typically, it's sort of a gut feel thing where some top executive just sort of says, hey, we're going to do this. Or, hey, our strategic plan says, you know, the goal for next six months or year or whatever is market share. So projects that help us get market share, will go with those. And the ones that increase profitability, well, you know, those are nice too, but they might get second tier. And I think there's so much more to it than that especially when you talk about group decision-making where, you know, again, if it's one leader saying what direction we're going to go in and everyone needs to follow me, you know, a la Steve Jobs or whatever, that can work, right? We've seen that work. But I think there's so much untapped creativity and uh, good ideas among uh, an entire leadership team that gets away from this cult of personality and is really can be channeled in such an effective way. So there's a few things, again, we won't go too deep into the deep end on ideas like the analytic hierarchy process or AHP, if folks are familiar with that, a great way to just kind of form a common conversation uh, mm-hmm. among a leadership team about what the right criteria even should be and what, what weightings they should have and exposing potential inconsistencies in your own brain and maybe just across how the whole leadership team thinks about things. Mm-hmm. So it could be a great harmonizing technique there. There, there's there's uh, certainly other things like like take the NASA example. Some of their programs are so long term, right? Like now they're trying to figure out how to get man on Mars, right? That you have to take a, a much longer time horizon look at it, right? Not all of us, you know. Like if I'm retiring in five years, which might be nice, I don't want to hear a bunch of investment options that might bear fruit in thirty years, mm-hmm. right? Uh, whereas NASA might take the opposite view. Like, I don't want quick wins and little little jumps that, you know, will never get me to Mars. They might produce interesting science and other things that maybe we should do. But if I really want to hit the big goal, some of them actually require a long-term uh, investment horizon. So all of that kind of thinking goes into the, you know, the, the project selection right. uh, pillar, if you will, for maximizing goal impact. 
Yeah, all these things fit into some kind of scoring model, right? That we're taking multiple dimensions, hopefully with those, you know, the executive team, the leadership team that's coming up with the criteria and scoring them in some sense through AHP, which is a whole other topic by itself, but a tool that I find great value in. But coming up with a scoring model for making this decision of what are the high impact projects that we should actually be doing. Yeah, I'll go further. Uh, it, no matter what method you use and whether you've heard of AHP or use it or not, mm-hmm. at the end of the day, there is resistance to just having a bunch of numbers and a spreadsheet or a model tell me what I'm supposed to do. Mm. Uh, So I I would just say it's not really about the numbers. It's about the conversation that the numbers force the team to have. Because often, especially with, you know, we all have our ideas of what would further the organization the most. We don't always agree with our peers what those ideas should be. Uh, And oh, by the way, then there's also politics. So if I'm the marketing guy, I probably think the marketing project should take precedence. And uh, if you're the finance guy, you might think the finance thing should take precedence. (laughs) But still, we're all leaders here. We all care about the organization. I really believe genuinely we do, even more than we might want to play politics sometimes. So we just need a way to have an effective conversation about these competing viewpoints without just devolving into, you know, a food fight. Yeah, it's an excellent point. Yeah, excellent point. I'll leave it at that. That's, it is about the conversation. That's really good. So your last bucket, if you can just give us a summary of this, it's about engineering, you know, the results, the high-performing results. And I guess looking at the projects and the portfolio composition to engineer those results that you want. Yes, I put this last because it it is sort of the finishing touch. You know, it's the cherry on top. It's not quite as powerful as as the first three to really boost the, you know, the performance uh, of any product or project portfolio. But it is uh, a very unique and interesting one that goes completely unnoticed almost everywhere I've been. And that is, you know, again, compared to a 401k or other financial investment, once you've made the selection of what you're going to invest in, you're sort of stuck with it until you decide to sell, right? There's not, nothing you can really do for the time that your money is invested to actually change how that investment performs, right? There might be some exceptions there, but typically if we're just investing in a bunch of stocks or even, you know, buying some real estate or, or whatever, uh, you know, we're hoping that over time the value goes up and then when we're ready to sell it, we, we make out fine. Projects and products and how we manage them offer a very interesting uh, difference there. We, got, we can actually engineer greater value as we go. Hmm. And so in my mind, you know, the, one of the, even the word agile, right, connotes that, you know, we have some ability to pivot and change course. But, and of course, we hope to do that to engineer greater value. But the discipline of engineering greater value is something I don't see, hmm. right? So this notion of, well, could we take a, a shorter path to a, an even tighter minimum viable product and deliver it faster and lower costs and maybe even have a bigger value side? Or if we tried to do that, would we actually be harming value because we put out a, a very incomplete, defective product that harms our reputation and nobody will ever want to do business with us again? You know, again, a lot of that is just sort of gut feel and... You know, we, we try to kind of trust, you know, the luminaries in, in the marketplace that just sort of seem to get it right all the time and have some great intuition. But the reality is those are these are things we can actually engineer quite well. In fact, you know, the, to take the old project management, you know, triple constraint, mm-hmm. uh, which which has gotten quite tired and flip it a bit and say, you know what, that's that's not really there as a goal unto itself, like hitting cost schedule and and scope isn't by itself the goal. 
the goal is optimizing those three and re-optimizing those three during execution in order to maximize the goal impact, right? Or profit or ROI, whatever you want to call it. And so if you allow an example, imagine I have my dream house and, you know, I don't plan to move into it for quite some time, maybe a decade even. So I've got plenty of time to iterate on the design and I really want to get it right. And you know what? I want it to be off in the mountains and I want it to have a wraparound porch like my grandma's house used to have. And I want to be able to invite neighbors over for lemonade like grandma used to do. And if you take me through the, you know, the Moscow method to prioritize those features, I might tell you, hey, the wraparound porch is a must, right? If it doesn't have the wraparound porch, then I don't, I don't want it. Uh, but the reality is if something happens where, you know, the special materials I want for that porch become hard to, to come by, or, you know, there's a, a, a strike at the quarry, you know, for the special kind of stone I want for it. And months go by and that's holding up my whole project. Okay. I might still not care because I'm not ready to retire yet, but what if I am, right? What if I really, I need to move in in six months and I've already sold my house and I have nowhere to live. Then every day that goes by that we're waiting on the dumb porch harms value right now. I have to pay for hotels you know, or whatever else. And so, you know what, maybe it's actually, it used to be a must, but maybe uh, as important as it was to me and as, as emotionally attached as I was to that feature, Maybe you can build me the house without the porch and just let me move into something now and we can build it later. Or, you know what? I don't want it anymore. It must be worth something in the open market. Sell it. We'll go redesign one with the porch I want you know, and wait a few more years. And so these options about, hey, when do we when do we decide to keep fishing or cut bait? You know, how, how do we go beyond just like the Moscow method and actually understand that value can be flexible? Right. Depending on what's happening on the value side of the equation or with, you know, in this case, the schedule. Right. If my schedule gets seriously delayed, that could really harm harm the value in this case. And so it's this uh, very liberating way to kind of look at, you know, the, the triple constraint as a way to engineer maximal value as things change. And of course, they always change. Things always change. And on product work, we have the changing business environment, changing customer preferences, their new needs and wants and competitors' actions. And we need to be aware of that throughout our product project work. So, okay, really appreciate that. The four categories there. I will add the graphic for people that kind of just want to see what the pieces of those are. And we'll tell everyone how to reach out to you if they want to know more details in just a moment. But as listeners know, we love innovation quotes around here. What did you bring for us? And what does that one mean to you? So, you know, my French is not so great, so please pardon my French, but the legendary philosopher, theoretical physicist, mathematician, and celestial mechanist, Henri Poincaré, I almost got it, he said something that I just think we should all uh, ponder all the time. He said, doubting everything and believing everything are two equally convenient solutions that guard us from having to think. And so I think, especially in this, in the current day and age, when different management approaches become like fads, like even if they work and they work well and they're better than what you used to do, must we embrace every aspect of them without questioning them, right? A quick example, I've had some of the best agile scrum teams I've ever seen start to challenge whether sprints were impeding their flow. Hmm. And they did an experiment, right, as, as teams should be empowered to do, right, safe-to-fail experiment. And they said, well, let's spend a month or two and just go with more of a continuous flow approach and see what it does to our overall cadence. And they found that in their case, it sped things up substantially. So they just uh, tweaked that aspect of Scrum. 
Uh-huh. And so we'll, we still like a lot of the other aspects. They make complete sense to us. But we don't just accept things as given, right? So we don't just believe everything we're told. And, of course, if we just doubt everything all the time, then we never get anywhere, right? We're just, yep. we're just always the, uh, you know, that jerk in the room that's, that's playing devil's advocate, you know, till, till everyone's blue in the face, right? <laughs> and so in my mind, part of the fun and the joy of all this is, you know, we, we are in the dark ages of this stuff. We are still experimenting and learning. We don't have to take anything at face value. We can challenge everything. Uh-huh. As long as we're actually doing safe to fail experiments and learning and growing and tailoring to the, the approach that actually does maximize goal impact. Yeah, that's a good way of summarizing. And I was thinking of the Northern Light. What are we all working towards, right? That goal impact is a good way of summarizing that from your framework and your perspective. Appreciate the quote. It's good not to be too much of one thing or the other thing. So, and always learning is something I think we all agree about. How can people find out more about this model, more about the work that you do, helping companies improve their performance? Yeah, so my website, which I imagine you might post since it's a little bit of a mouthful. I will make sure it's in the show notes. ForteZaConsulting.com. If you speak Italian, Forteza or Forteza is just the word for fortress in Italian. And then we all know how to spell consulting, I hope. And of course, I'm trying to be more and more active on LinkedIn and places that people actually spend more time than maybe poking around different people's websites. Uh-huh. So, so you'll find some of my thinking and latest work there. Great. I'll make sure those links are in the show notes and people can find that. Really appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us, Mike, and talking about how we can perform better through our projects and a framework for helping us deal with that. Right on. Thanks so much, Chad. And now it's time for bonus questions. So those of you hanging out with us, one of the things that comes up as we're doing this, like I said earlier, selecting the right projects is, was my favorite part of your category. Those with the, mm-hmm. the highest impact. And yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. uh, getting that done is a challenge for organizations that haven't done it before, right? I was working with one organization. They had 120 active projects, product projects in their pipeline, and just hardly anything ever came out, right? They're just for, a, for that size of projects, not enough resources. So having those conversations about, well, how do we reprioritize and make decisions about what to work on? It's really challenging. So give us some insights about that, working with leaders that you need to convince. I mean, at the end of the day, there's no, there's no shortcut to that one, right? There's no, I think somebody once said, the only way, the only way forward is through. Mm-hmm. We can't go around it or under it or over it. You need a leader with uh, enough political will and enough political capital and maybe even enough, I call it bravery, some might call it foolishness, right? To say, hey, look, we have overloaded our system. We need to take some large portion of the ongoing projects. Uh, good rough, rough order magnitude rule of thumb guess is about half. And put them on hold. We will have to renegotiate some of the commitments we've already made, and that's painful. But the other half that are the higher priority will get done far, far faster. Mm-hmm. And oh, by the way, the last one in the queue, the lowest priority, will also get done much, much faster. Just the fact that it's ongoing now as opposed to on pause now doesn't mean it'll finish faster, right? In fact, I, like you just said, Chad, like you can almost guarantee if, you're, if there's clear signs that there's not much flow going on and we've overloaded things, the fastest way to get even the lower priority projects done is to put them on hold right now. 
Yeah. And just to underscore that, I want to go back to the analogy you used before of the freeway, right? When things are so congested, I'm sure we have, many of us have had this experience that if I take, you know, so if I live near the Denver, Colorado area, we have, this is our interstate that goes uh, <laughs> north, south there. And there's times when there's an accident on the, on the interstate and everything comes to a crawl or just during rush hours, sometimes things come to a crawl. And it can take me maybe three hours when things are bad to just go 60 or so miles from Denver down to Colorado Springs, south of town. But I know if I wait an extra hour and then make that trip, it can take me an hour to you know, make the same, same trek at times. And so there's this notion of, it kind of comes back to, we didn't dive into staggering, but having the, the flow at a higher level, when, you, when I enter that interstate, I know I can still get home just as fast as I would have just stuck through that crummy flow. Yeah. And, you know, compared to the uh, highway example, where in your case, you were waiting for cars to find their way off the road, mm-hmm. right? In projects, we can just pull them off right now, right? We can just snap our fingers and those projects are now, you know, those cars are no longer there. Poof. They're in some holding pen that, you know, are elevated above the highway. We can't see them. right? Mm-hmm. So there's a certain uh, additional power and magic you have in the product and project worlds that the highway example kind of doesn't, right? You have to actually wait for the jam to clear. Uh, in the real world, we can just clear it. Yep, absolutely. Okay, so this notion of, of you need an executive who's willing to take this on, someone with that political crap, political clout and bravery helps, right? And knows how to navigate the political system uh, in the organization. And a good start is to say, we're going to put half the projects on hold. We're going to focus on the first half that hopefully we've done the work of selecting which are most important, which creates the best goal impact for us, the highest value, and then renegotiate if we need to with the commitments that that might take. But also this notion that by staggering that work, everything's still going to get done. We're just going to get the most important stuff done faster. Yeah, and the key with that is, in fact, central to the whole notion of staggering isn't just, hey, we're, we've probably taken on too much and we're living in a congested world. Mm-hmm. But also there is a natural bottleneck in our system that we every time we try to go faster than that bottleneck allows, we end up slower, right? And that's often a tough question. And if you don't know what that is or where it is and you can't get agreement among the leadership team about all that, like I said, that's where maybe just taking the the bottom half of the priority list and putting on hold is a good rule of thumb and, you know, b- better than just staying frozen, right. And unable to do anything. Mm-hmm. But even better, of course, is if you're like, you know what, I think it's our chief designers or top architects or, you know, the people that not only cost us more than the average employee, but also the hardest to find and hire and grow and then grow in our organization, the way we do things, right. And really mm-hmm. learn where all the bones are buried and so forth. And so sometimes your intuition can just gravitate towards sort of where the natural constraint likely is, right? Which tends to be these very creative design or top level thinkers. And so if you just say, well, how many can those guys handle at any given moment for when the projects need the most? They're probably not needed on every phase of the project anyways. Maybe in this case, it's more front loaded, for example. And just say, okay, guys, if you really could just sit and focus and do this job right for just this one initiative, how much time would you need? And let's say they say three weeks or something. Then now you've got like a three-week stagger of those key resources and you just kind of, you could do it in a spreadsheet, right? You don't need a fancy, you know, some kind of fancy modeling tool, although they exist. Just do a quick and dirty one that kind of says, okay, well, if that's even close to being right, that'll give us a much more accurate number for how we're supposed to set the natural cadence around here 
And then also say, well, if those guys are setting the pace, what might the rest of us do to help them accelerate that pace? And that gives us enormous organizational focus on exactly, you know, where the organizational agility and flow and all that is actually going to come from. That's a good example. I'm glad you shared that. So let's say we identify one, we have one group of, we'll call them designers, but where that constraint is. And they tend to do all their work together as a group. So if we say that they take three weeks to do the work that they need on some phase of a project, then we know we can't start a new project except every three weeks uh, at the maximum because we need their commitment to that time. Yep. If we happen to have three of those groups, then we could have three you know, kind of waves of projects going simultaneously. Right on. Okay. And, oh, by the way, if those guys get in the thick of it and they say, you know what, we might need like five weeks on this one, mm-hmm. well, then just reset the cadence for the ones that are teed up to start later. Yeah, with that group. Don't, yep. don't just stick those guys into the three-week box and, and tell them that that's their sprint zero or, or whatever and that's the only time box they get. And similarly, if they can knock it out in a week with some really simple, elegant solution, let's not burn the other two weeks. Let's... Let's have the other, the number two project ready to go, ready to go. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that, that's the key aspect of agility, being able to respond like that. Right on. Okay, so that helps a lot. So I, I'm glad I asked the question, some really good insights. And a good rule of thumb there you shared too, right? If we could just focus on the first half of the projects and then negotiate on the rest, that'd be really good. Excellent. I can't believe we got through all this in this amount of time, Chad. <laughs> You're an excellent interviewer. <laughs> You're very kind. A uh, lot, lot of good questions there. And I know for those listening, some of these concepts are, are, might be a little bit deep, but some good things to dive into and, and reach out and we'll help with you diving into those things too. So, right on. Mike, thanks so much. Thank you, Chad. This is a pleasure. Thank you for listening again to The Everyday Innovator. This is where product leaders and managers make their move to product master, learning practical knowledge that leads to more influence and confidence so you'll create products customers love. Now let's go through this one more time. Mike shared some really good insights. Remember, we talked about how to get projects done, how to execute projects more reliably, how to select higher impact projects. I really think that's the big picture here that we need to start with. And engineering high impact projects to get those portfolio results overall that we need. Really good insights. I hope you go check out the show notes. And remember, there's that bonus question in the show notes. You'll find that at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 261 with the bonus question, how do you convince leaders to prioritize and do fewer projects better? And as always, keep innovating. Thank you for listening to The Everyday Innovator, which teaches product managers to become product masters. For more resources, please visit theeverydayinnovator.com.